Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I have on the show today uh, Dr. Michelle Knight. Dr. Knight teaches Old Testament and Semitic languages at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. She got her PhD at Wheaton College. She is an expert in the book of Judges. Uh, she did her PhD dissertation on the song of Deborah and Barak uh, from Judges 5. And that's where we go in this podcast. This is a this is a a an in-depth Bible study podcast. We talk about specific nitty gritty elements of the book of Judges. Then we talk about the conquest, um, the, uh, some of the ethical problems of the conquest in the book of Joshua. And so this is just a pure, uh, grade A, unadulterated, um, high octane um, look at some of the most neglected books. Well, I think Judges is often neglected, at least in the pop, you know popular Christian circles. And so we just go after it. This is just a hardcore Bible study. So please welcome to the show for the first time, Dr. Michelle Knight. Friends, uh, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with my new virtual friend, Dr. Michelle Knight. Uh, Michelle, thanks so, so much for being on the show for the first time. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. All right. So, Michelle, you have a PhD in Old Testament and Semitic languages from Wheaton College. Um, and I don't know if people know, but that PhD program, I remember when they first started it, and it was like... So incredibly hard to get into. Like they take just a couple <laughs> students a year in each discipline. Is it still like that? Yeah, they still just take two. Um, at least the last time I was there, they took two Old Testament students a year or yeah. two for each advisor. And so, yeah, it was competitive. I mean, it's one of the most competitive evangelical programs. Yeah. So it was, um, but it was a really good fit. So I'm yeah. glad it worked out. And you studied under Daniel Block, who, again, if people don't know that name, he is, to my mind, at least one of the top five evangelical testament scholars who is truly evangelical and yet i hate saying and yet but you know what i mean and yet a, a world-renowned old testament scholar like he wrote the definitive from my mind uh commentary on the book of ezekiel it's like what 1600 pages or something <laughs> um yeah and just and a, still considered to be he's yeah. a profound old testament scholar and now you're a professor assistant professor of old testament and semitic languages right at uh yeah. trinity evangelical divinity school which Again, if you know the field of seminaries, um, is one of the top evangelical seminaries in the world, really. So you're kind of a big deal, Michelle. And here you're on my little podcast. <laughs> mm, yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, I, I, so let's just dive in. You're, one of your main areas of research is the Book of Judges. And as we just mentioned offline, that is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, specifically because of the literary genius of the book. I mean, people, uh, people usually go to judges cause it's a, it's an, it's an engaging book. There's lots of gnarly <laughs> stories. It's not hard to read. Um, whenever I want like, to wake my kids up to the Bible, I just say, all right, let's turn to judges and they're, you know, at the age of their seat. <laughs> but having taught old Testament survey over the years, I've, I've every year I've co constantly noticed just little things throughout the book that it, uh, that it shows that the author is so intentional, not just in what they say, but how they say it, like little oh, yeah. tiny details. Right. Am I, am I right there? Absolutely. I mean, there have been, uh, I mean, the amount of research, um, I did for my dissertation. I mean, there was so much written on the literary artistry mm. and judges and there's still more to be said. Wow. I mean, it's, it's a, there's so much to notice. Yeah. Wow. So it, it is really brilliant. Good. I mean, I, I, I would notice things. I'm like, am I just seeing this? And, and I wish I can give some examples. Well, like, well, let, let me just say this. And, and I want to jump into Judges 5, your, your dissertation topic. But um, uh, Daniel Block, your advisor, famously said that, you know, the theme of Judges is the canonization of Israel. If you don't drive out the Canaanites, you will become one of them. And Judges 1 and 2 sets it up. They didn't drive him out. And then you had this downward spiral, right? Am I, and correct me if I'm wrong. I'm, I'm just kind of nervous. You're doing great. <laughs> the judges special with you. <laughs> this downward spiral. And they become more and more and more canonized so that when you get to the end of the book, um, you have this famous and, and one of the most gruesome, um, disturbing passages in all of Scripture, Judges 19, um, 
which is a mirror. It's it, it's a it's almost a a replica of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Only now, instead of these horrific Sodomites doing all this terrible stuff, they're Israelites, Benjamites in particular, who are acting like Sodomites. You know, and just the way the author retells that story and maps it on the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. But they're all throughout that story, there's little details. It's just like. Is society just turned inside out? This is just a really, uh, yeah. Um, what, so Judges 5, is uh, is it called Deborah's Song? Is that the official kind of academic or what's the? Sure, that's what most people call it, is the Song of Deborah. Song Every of now Deborah. and again when I'm trying to be nitpicky, I call it the Song of Deborah and Barack because sometimes we forget that Barack sang with Deborah and that's kind of a big deal. Um, it's one of the only times in the book that God and the people seem to be on the same page. So for a prophet and for the judge to be singing alongside each other, kind of, it's kind of a big deal. So, uh, it's a mouthful, but I tend to like to call it the song of Deborah and Barak for that reason. I did. Yeah. That's totally chapter five, verse one. And that, then that on that day, Deborah and Barak, Barak uh, sang, and then they sang the song. I, yeah. Cause I always, yeah. wow. I always thought it was yeah, just we, Deborah. We totally miss it. I know. And I mean, she's the prophet and it's definitely in her voice. Uh, yeah. But the fact that he was able to sing it too is, is pretty key to how the narrative unfolds. Now her name's listed first. Is that significant? Because she does kind of, she's yeah. kind of the leader of the day in Judges 4. Well, in Hebrew, it's even more significant because like the verb only agrees with her as the subject and he's kind of tacked on. So it's really? really clear in the Hebrew that she is the primary voice. It's, it's like a feminine verb. Uh, so she's saying... <laughs> And he sang too. Uh, so, well, that, and that, that, that's a standard kind of Hebrew construction. It's not too weird, but it does identify her as like the main subject. But isn't that the whole point of Judges 4? The whole story that it's celebrating that Barak is there, but she's really in control kind of thing? I mean, or... It no. really depends on how you read it. That's oh, okay. You got so Okay. Reading, <laughs> but I challenged that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, let's go back um, to Judges 4. G- give us your, your yeah. from your vantage point, just an overview of Judges 4, what's going on there, and sure. then we'll get into uh, the song of Deborah and, and Barak. Sure. Um, and you said Barak a couple times, and that's, I think, maybe the standard English reading. So, okay. sorry that I keep switching. No, it's fine. I can't help but read it in the Hebrew. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, so in Judges 4, we have the people yet again have started doing evil, um, as we have kind of every time somebody new gets on the scene in Judges, we have uh, them um, transgressing their agreement with God. Uh, and so that's how it starts out. Uh, he uh, sells them into the hand of the Canaanites. So this is a big deal because this is the first time in Judges that it's actually people from inside the land of Canaan that are oppressing Israel. He's not bringing somebody new in. These are like the stereotypical people. Their one job in life is to fight these guys. And these are the people that are uh, giving Israel a hard time. Uh, And the uh, Jabin is the king, but he has a general named Sisera. Sisera and Jabin are set up pretty nicely because they have iron chariots. So we're at like the turn into the Iron Age. And so for their to be iron um, chariots is kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that also shows us that they have chariots, which is more than Israel had. And this is also the weapon that in Judges 1 gave everybody trouble. This is the reason they couldn't complete the conquest is because there were these really well um, armed people. Mm -hmm. So these are the people who have Israel under their control in Judges 4. Um, Deborah comes on the scene uh, because the people have cried out to God like they always do. And they go to Deborah uh, for help. Mm-hmm. And they're like, we don't know what to do. Um, and she says, well, we got to get Barack in here. Uh, and what is generally, this is the part that we all argue about as scholars. The general reading is that Barack says, I don't want to go to battle. Um, and then Deborah has to be like, dude, get with the program. God called you. You yeah. got to do it. Uh, and so we tend to paint it as him being like hesitant, but her being courageous and strong and being the real leader. And she's like dragging him along the whole way. Yeah. Occasionally, I think we're overreading there a little okay. bit um, because what she does in Judges 4 is say, let me read it here. So I'm not making the stuff up. Um, he says, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. And she says, listen, I'll go with you. But because of what you're doing, uh, the honor won't be yours for God's going to deliver sister into the hands of a woman. So a lot of times we hear that honor word. We automatically mean that if he's not getting honor, he's getting shamed. And then that tends to be how we read the whole chapter. But what it really looks like is happening is 
God's saying, listen, something great's going to happen, but you're not going to be the guy who does it. I'm going to do it through a totally different way. In fact, it's going to be a woman. And it being a woman isn't shameful. It being a woman is a civilian. It's not going to be the military that brings victory. It's going to be a housewife. Um, And so right off the bat, she's like, I'm happy to go with you, but going with you isn't going to be where the battle happens anyway. It's going to be in jail's tent is kind of this... Mm -hmm. Um, how I would read that. And I'm not totally alone there, just FYI. I'm just yeah. going out on a limb a little bit. No, um, yeah, the, the reading you're kind of countering a little bit is how I always understood it, that it is, he's kind yeah. of a wuss, you know, and he needs this woman to come along and it's kind of a roundabout shaming of him. So you're saying it's not that I would argue clear. it's not. There's okay. just, there's all sorts of shaming in the narrative, but mm-hmm. it's all centered on, um, it's all centered on Sisera. He's really the only one that experiences shame. Okay. Um, and at the end, we do get a little bit, I mean, he's definitely criticized. But what's interesting is in the Song of Deborah in chapter five, um, when she goes through, she evaluates everybody that took care part in the battle. She yells at certain tribes for not coming. She applauds other ones. She never says Barak did anything wrong. Okay. So it's kind of interesting that in that prophetic moment, she never calls him out. Um, so it seems like more what she's doing is educating him again. He did something wrong by not immediately listening to a prophet, but the narrative goes out of its way to make Cicero look like a wuss. It doesn't do so much with Barack. I would say it mostly shows Barack is hesitant and that's going to be problematic. Gideon's going to kind of take that and roll with it and be really a problem. That makes more sense in light of where it's at in the narrative. Cause this is what always threw me off. If this was a massive shaming and Barrack, I wouldn't expect it so early on because early on, you know, Ehud yeah. is, he's pretty good. He's there's, you know, what's with the idols oh, yeah. and this stuff. But then the next one shouldn't be that bad. And then we get all the way down to actually, Samson, right? I would actually argue that we don't start evaluating the judges till chapter six. And oh, there's a really? couple others okay. who agree with me because if you think about it, we don't have that much information about Ehud. Like he right. did his job and he did it well. Uh-huh. Um, we have a little more information about Barak, but it's not until we meet Gideon that we know about his motivations, that mm-hmm. we hear his internal monologue, that we know why he's making decisions. Mm-hmm. We have none of that information for the first three judges. Um, and so I would argue and some others with me that the first three judges are more about saying, look at what God can do. And oh, he can do okay. it with the most unexpected instruments, whether it be a left-handed warrior from Benjamin right. or a woman with a tent peg. Uh, And then it's going to be, how will Israel respond to these three great victories? And we're going to see they're going to respond worse and worse as Mm -hmm. they go on. Um, But I do think you're right. We already have hints in the early chapters that things are going to go awry. So it's not like it's all sunshine Mm -hmm. and rainbows. But I think that we overread just a little Mm -hmm. bit some of the negatives in these early narratives, personally. All right. I'll I'll process that. That's no, that that makes sense. (laughs) I love, does she give him milk because it is kind of a sedative? Um, some people argue that. Um, other people just talk about um, – some, some people would say that. Some people would say it's like a maternal picture. Um, okay. And feminists tend to kind of highlight that, that there's some motherly imagery going on that she kind of – and it's part of the shaming of Sisera. She gives him milk. She puts him to bed, yada, yada, yada. Let's <laughs> put him to bed. Uh, uh, I would say something more like every time he asks her to do something, she does something else. I call it subtle insurgency. Uh, it's kind of uh, a way the narrative is just showing us that at every stage uh, she's kind of got her own agenda and she is doing her own thing. Um, but I think that you're right. There's definitely um, a sense in which it can make him tired. That's mm-hmm. how some people talk about it. And it's certainly also an honorary thing. She didn't just give him water. She gave him something more costly. Um, and in the song, it calls it a bowl fit for nobles. So that would suggest that part of it is her showing her deceiving him by making it look like she's honoring him. Oh, Whereas okay. instead, she's kind of got her own thing going on. It could be That's like the, the last meal before execution. <laughs> Indeed, she's sending him for the slaughter. Uh, the sedative effect is possible, I suppose, but I actually don't hear that too frequently. Well, it, it does say, you know, he was sleeping from exhaustion in verse 21. It doesn't say he was sleeping because he was from milk, you know. So it doesn't seem like the author's it, – it's kind of yeah, – could I, be possibly implied, he, but he's not drawing attention to that. He certainly had a big enough day that I don't think milk's going to be what sets him over the edge right. at this point. <laughs> I love he didn't have to flee the battle on foot. So yeah. I think he, was, he had other reasons to be tired. <laughs> I love she – here's typical judges. Um 
She hammered the peg into his temple, which is that she could we could end there and maybe get the picture and drove it into the ground. And he died. You know, yeah, you think? And he died. <laughs> well, and in Judges 5, in the song, it uses seven verbs. Not just one or two. It uses seven verbs to describe her pounding it into his temple. Just to make sure that, like, we stop and slow down and yeah. take in all of that horror. That's 5, intense. 26, and 27. She reached for the mm-hmm. tent peg in her right hand. Hammered Sisera, crushed his head, shattered and pierced his temple. He collapsed, he fell, he lay down at her feet. He collapsed, he collapsed, he fell at her feet. What's with the rep in, ver- in chapter, and we'll, I'm kind of getting ahead here, but in chapter five, verse 27, I've always, it's so poetic, it's so repetitive. Is that just that, is that like a, a ancient Aries version of like slow motion? Like, yeah. you know. Absolutely. It's part of, I mean, the whole song uses a different kind of repetition than we see in um, poems in the other parts of the Bible. So it's already kind of a weird sort of extra repetitive kind of um, poetry. Um, If you read other parts, it's like that. But in that part, I would absolutely say that it slows it down. Uh, It's incredibly slow motion um, Mm. to a degree that we actually don't see a lot in poetry. So this is a Mm. really, um, it's a really artistic rendering of what's going on. But yeah. And does that go with the shame? Even him laying down at her feet? Is that like a posture of submission or worship or um, or just conquering? I would would say something like conquering, but I think it's especially important when we read it um, with what comes next in the song. Uh, The next part of the song is um, Cicero's household. They're sitting around at home, like waiting for him to come home. They don't know what's happened. So we're supposed to kind of enjoy that irony as much as it's a cruel irony. Um, But they are sitting there kind of daydreaming about the spoil he's going to bring home. And that spoil includes women that he has conquered. (sighs) And so part of the juxtaposition of the two images is the vulnerable civilian woman that would have been a prisoner of war, that would have become one of the women he brought home for himself, is actually the one that subdued him at her feet. Um, And so whether that has some sexual overtones or not, it definitely means um, she conquered him um, in a way that he would have expected to conquer her. So the reversal is really staggering. Yeah. That verse 30, the mother saying, you know, like where, when's my son going to show up with a couple of his, you know, conquered slave women, you know, like, Oh my God, the mother's like, it's just bizarre. Yeah. Every now and again, I'm like, why did I work in this chapter for like four years? It's just, it's a lot. All right, so let's let's just go back. Tell tell. Okay, so we you summed up Judges four. So what's going on at Judges five? And I I am one of these people who, you know, I appreciate the the poetry, um, but I haven't always I've always wondered like what's if I just skip over chapter five, is, how much is lost? And that's probably so sure. insulting to somebody that did their dissertation on chapter five, but um, <laughs> I'm just being honest, you know? So yeah. What, um, tell us about chapter five. What should the average reader take away here? Let me set it this way. Um, at the end of Deuteronomy, we get this prophecy that um, there will be other prophets that rise up. There will mm-hmm. be a prophet like Moses. Uh, the first person in the Old Testament who is called a prophet after Moses is actually Deborah. Um, and what's interesting wow. is we, I mean, we have Joshua. He's called a slew of things. He's never called a prophet. Um, similarly, we have a messenger in Judges 2, never called a prophet. That might be a big deal. It might not. But the point is, by calling her a neviah, uh, uh, sorry, a prophet or a prophetess, um, we are identifying her as somebody who is like Moses and somebody who speaks for God. In fact, if you look at Judges 4, uh, even the narrative just sets her up as the spokesperson of God. She's always saying, did not God say? Has not Yahweh commanded? Um, And so when we get into Judges 5, it's important to remember that we have a prophetic authority speaking. A battle has just happened, yeah. But then a prophet stands up and says, let me tell you what just happened in my own words and from my own perspective. And so right here on the battlefield, rather than having to wait for the author of Judges to help us understand what happened, they on that day had somebody with an inspired authoritative voice explain to them what just happened and how they should understand it. Mm. Uh, And so one of the ways I tend to talk about Judges 5 is it's a prophetic interpretation of the battle. It tells us what happened with a more kind of theologically robust um, way. She does things like criticize certain people. Mm -hmm. Uh, She yells at them for not coming at the moment of need. Uh, She does things like uh, identify that what JL did is blessed. This is something that we should look at um, and see positively. 
which is helpful when all of us come and ask what uh, what happened with Jael. Was it okay that she did that? We should probably remember that the prophet said it was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, she she talks through the fact that the stars from their courses, that's the word she uses, um, fought against Sisera. When she talks about the battle, she doesn't glorify the men who who did this or that or the other. Mm-hmm. The actual battle scene that she describes talks about stars and it talks about the water. These are the two entities that fought. And so when she reimagines the battle, she does it in terms of God's agency. Is that, and yeah, so by the time we get... Can you explain stars? Oh, are you talking like, is that paralleling like angelic beings kind of? Like not literal stars or what? Depends. Either way, when we talk about the stars from their courses, we're generally talking about creation responding. Okay. And within the Hebrew Bible, I mean, we have a theophany, uh, which would be an appearance of God early uh, in Judges 5. So we're already waiting for kind of creation to respond because he shows up, he's shaking the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're waiting for creation to respond. So we see stars, we see the Kishon River or a wadi, if you know Israel, Um <laughs> But uh, so we're already expecting that uh, other people have drawn attention to the fact that stars are associated with rain in the ancient Near East. They're okay. also associated with like the goddess and uh, And so there is kind of just a general expectation that if if creation is responding, it's responding to a deity uh, and that a deity is the one kind of in charge of that. And so to talk about all these supernatural things happening is a way of saying, sure, Israel, you were there. And in fact, mm-hmm. this song celebrates that you showed up. But showed up is all you did. God was the one that brought mm-hmm. victory. And that's the way Judges 4 says it, too. It says God was the one that routed Sisera on that day. It doesn't say anything about the army. Um, and so it kind of reiterates the same thing we started to see in Judges 4, that this wasn't about the army. It wasn't about their strength. Uh, in fact, Judges 5 goes out of its way to highlight how, um, how weak Israel's army was. They didn't have any spears. They didn't have a sword. There was nothing there. They they had no commerce. They weren't doing daily life. I'm looking when I talk about that up in Judges um, 5 verses 6 and 7. Um, the highways were abandoned. Um, travelers had to use kind of winded paths that were safe. Um, and so we see Israel completely dilapidated and unable to do anything. And so what the song does is highlight Israel had nothing. Uh he can use whatever he needs to to get the job done. Ultimately, no matter how weak we are, no matter how weak an army is, he can enable them to do great things. And in Judges 4 and 5, he proves that to them by using Jael. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be Israelite army that brings victory. It's going to be Jael in a tent. It's going to be a non-Israelite, just in case you want to get nationalistic. And it's going to be a woman, just to make sure you don't get militaristic. Uh, and so at the end of the day, God is one who brings victory and he does it in really weird and unexpected places. And he does it with the people you consider to be weakest. Uh, Yael, Jael, she's not a, she's not an Israelite. Oh, Heber, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Yeah. She's not an Israelite. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I never, wow. Okay. And so at the end of the day, when the song ends, we have, kind of this challenge to Israel that those who love God can go forth with his might. Like you have no reason to be nervous about going to battle. God is a God who does miraculous things, just like he did in the Exodus. He's doing it now, which is going to set us up for chapter six. When after we've had this massive display of God's sovereign ability to control things and bring victory, Gideon's going to be like, you haven't done anything for us since the Exodus. And that's going to just kind of ring in our ears as line to what god has just done oh, oh my mind's spinning here this is good stuff oh. golly I, I feel like i owed ted some tuition money for this <laughs> <laughs> i did just talk a lot so i'm sorry about that seriously this, this yeah um i'm still just reeling from she's the first deborah's the first prophet since moses yeah. And for any Israelite who knows Deut- Deuteronomy 18 is looking for a prophet like unto Moses, which is a very, can we say messianic uh, theme expectation-ish? I mean, at least when you get to Jesus, he's, you know, taps into that. Yeah. Um, wow. And it's a woman. Yeah. That- <laughs> and it's a woman. And if you read Judges 4 carefully, I did an intertextual study for one thing I did. Uh, and it, like... All of her actions have like really strong mosaic 
overtones. Really? Like even sitting under the palm of Deborah and people coming up to her for oh, judgment, yeah. that's the way uh, Moses is described, um, the way that they came to him. So it it's really interesting how mosaic she is. She is the person at this point in this area who speaks for God. And mm-hmm. that's what Moses was for the people. What tribe is she from? Oh, Do we know? I don't know. Or Naphtali or... Well, that's I think that we tend to guess based okay. on where she does her stuff because she's in the hill country of Ephraim. That's where she held court. Oh, and right. so we are assuming she's from that, but it, we aren't told exactly what okay. her, I mean, we know who her wife is or her husband rather. Yeah. Well, depending on how we translate that. But. Okay. Okay. So the, the, the uh, Judges 5 has this kind of divine warrior theme. I mean, we see this oh, in most battle scenes in Israel. It's typically you got a weak army. God's the big God. Have faith yeah. in me and I'll take care of it. That, that's kind of the summary of. <laughs> um, yeah, pretty common. And even like, yeah, even in uh, why, uh, in J- uh, Joshua, is it 10 when like. Not only did the sun stand still and hailstones come down, but the author makes it a point like more people were killed by the hailstones than by exactly. you know the swords. Um, it's actually it's a really consistent motif in all of mm-hmm. the warfare passages of the Old Testament to really assign primary agency to Yahweh. So how does this song, uh, song of Deborah and uh, Barak, <laughs> um, how does it function in the rest of the book? Like because you, you said you t- tied this to the kind of overarching literary purpose of the book. Yeah. Well, I would say um, part of what the book is doing, as you have articulated and Dan Block did before that, that um, we're showing kind of the canonization of Israel. We've shown how they've come from uh, the Joshua generation who was really faithful. Mm -hmm. The whole book of Joshua is talking about how great uh, everybody did at following instructions and how faithfully God completed his work in them. Mm -hmm. The judges generation then is our generations are all of the people who, uh, steadily fell away so that we understand where we end up by the time we get to the monarchy and we see what's happening with Samuel and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in this process of notice of um, tracking the downturn, what Judges does in Judges 2 and 3, it sets us up for the book by saying they're going to have all of these military skirmishes, and these are going to teach them about war, but it's also going to help us evaluate. It's going to help uh, to show whether or not they're going to be able to follow what God has had uh, for mm-hmm. them to do. It's important to remember that most of the liter- legal literature they've gotten at this point is giving them instructions on how to settle in the land. Properly right. following all of these rules about dedicating this land to God and doing it fully and making sure to resist the influence um, of um, the inhabitants of the land is crucial to um, the way that we identify whether or not they're being faithful. So how people respond in war is evaluated every time we have a battle narrative mm-hmm. in Judges. Okay. And what Judges 5 does is it, it kind of gives us a paradigmatic battle. Um, it's the one that's against the Canaanites, which is like mm-hmm. the name for the inhabitants yeah. of the land. And it gives us kind of a hermeneutical key to say, how should we interpret what we're seeing here? And we get a moment where somebody speaking with God's voice tells us, it it tracks all of the people, what they did, and then tells us if it was good or bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we also get the, 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 um, we get all of the standards we need to keep making those judgments as we keep reading. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say about it in the book is that the first three narratives, like I insinuated earlier, are a little more focused on, the um uh, on god and his great deliverance and a little bit less on the judges and their failures that's a little bit more Mm -hmm. in the second half of the book so this is the song that comes after those first three judges and before the next three so it provides kind of a break where it's like let's review god was really awesome uh, and he did really great things now what are you going to do about it so when Gideon starts out being like, I don't know, God hasn't really done anything for us recently. <laughs> that's the beginning at the end. And so we see, even though it's a gradual downturn, it, it becomes sharp right then. So from Gideon onward, we see things kind of spiral out of control a lot yeah. more quickly because we've had this moment where the judge and the prophet were on the same page for a second. And we yeah. start thinking that like, maybe they're going to be okay. Um, and we find out that they're not. That makes total sense. So it's kind of like a, yeah, it's a transition. I mean, I mean that plays a really significant theological point then because this is like, yeah, concluding the good perspective before we kind of get into uh, the downfall. Um, where is I call it a 
like this is what the author judges thinks where where they think Israel should be <laughs> trusting in God, not in their own might, not being fearful. Yeah. 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 Is there, you you mentioned offline, you know, you've been done some work in like kingship and, and, uh, old Testament and ancient Near East. Is there like a critique of power or kingship here? I mean, it's the, in verse three, chapter five, you know, listen, yeah. Kings pay attention, princes. And you've already shown that like, you know, this, this housewife is the hero of the day. Um, is that, is that going on in judges as well? I mean, um, I mean, that's a, obviously an ongoing discussion. I mean, in Judges, we always debate whether it's pro or anti-kingship, right. especially because at the end of the book, right. it talks about how all of this happened in a day when there wasn't kings. And so a lot of people would say all of Judges is about showing how badly kings were needed. Uh, and I would want to, if I said that, I'd want to say um, it shows us how badly good kings were needed. Because yeah. um, most of the time the word kings is used in judges, as you pointed out, it's negative. Mm-hmm. The only time we talk about kings and judges, they're non-Israelite kings and they're a bad example. The one Israelite king we get is Abimelech. Uh, and right. he took the throne by force and he's actually painted less like an Israelite and more like one of these other Canaanite rulers. Uh, the point is, when Israel tries to make a king for itself, it looks a lot more yeah. like the nations. And Samuel's going to say the same thing in that, the next book of the Bible. That's exactly how I've taken it. So that's, and that's not overly simplistic. You can, like, like that it's not critiquing kingship per se, but king, it's critiquing kingship like the nations. Like, yeah, Saul oh, absolutely. And, and yeah. I think Samuel is very clear about that, I would yeah. argue, and the way that he articulates the problem. It's the like the nations part. In fact, in his speech with the people in his conversation, he specific at one point they say, we want to be like the nations. Yeah. They don't even just say we want a king like the nations. And so the problem with kingship in Judges is not that there's a king, but the kind of kingship there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say that has something to do with this military business. Um, the kind of kingship that's really militaristic and about um, getting as much land as possible and conquering other people, that's the kind of kingship that's problematic. And that's what gets Solomon in trouble in his later days. Mm -hmm. And it's what makes Saul a bad king too. Um, David's going to be one that conquers and does all of these things, but he constantly says, God fights. I don't fight. That's David's whole thing. Uh, And so I would say the good kingship is one that recognizes and defers ultimate authority, specifically in military matters to God. And that's kind of a big theme. I mean, throughout all of scripture, really. I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, it's the, and that's what's, I know it's, I don't mean to make it so simple, but it really is. And it's, it's constant throughout the old Testament. Um, And kingship seems to be the mode by which that gets measured in the faithfulness of Israel. Uh, in the way that these military things seem to just be kind of the crucible in which we mm. see um, everybody's hearts uh, kind of laid bare. And so it ends up being the mode by which everybody's faithfulness is measured, kings, judges, even yeah. the people in the wilderness. It was in battle that we discerned whether or not they were obedient. Wow. And then Jesus comes along and kind of redefines kingship according to the original vision, which was incredibly countercultural, but was kind of there all along, right? The Deuteronomy 17 king. Um, Wow. Um, Yeah, so I mean, Judges, so you would say it is a pro-Davidic book, or or is that too much? (laughs) I I mean, I'm not ready. I mean... Am I ready to say that somebody sat down and was like, I want to say that David's awesome and they wrote the book that way? I'm not sure I would say that. Uh, But I would say that it is written to show how Israel ended up wanting the wrong kind of king. I think that's what I want to say. And that that and that's embodied in the judges as they get progressively, progressive, progressively worse and worse and worse. Well, Um, and most importantly, uh, they get bad when they start choosing them themselves, which is exactly what they tried to do with the king, too. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. What's going on at the end of the book? So this, I mentioned, you know, Judges 19. Um, you got this horrific incident where you have the, is it the Levite goes and stays at, I'm reading out of a newer Bible here and I all my notes are gone, but. Um, That's the worst. 
Yeah. You're talking about the Gibeah incident in Judges 19. Yeah, I think. yeah, yeah. Well, then, then he, yeah, yeah, this brutal, I mean, rape scene. Um, yeah. How do you, how do you, when you read this, <laughs> and I don't know what to say as a female, but I mean, I, I just, I understand. I've read it through a male lens for so many years and then tried to recognize that I'm reading it through a male lens, which is still disturbing, but, um, yeah, what's going on in this passage in Judges 19? So many things. Um, <laughs> the one thing that I'll highlight before we start is um, right in the middle of the passage, uh, you already identified the fact that in these last chapters of Judges, we kind of have a, a body of chapters designed to show us just how bad Israel has gotten. So the fact that it's it's tucked in there should give us a lot of guidance about how to read the story. We should expect mm-hmm. this to be Israel at her worst. Um, and the other thing we want to highlight is um, one of the things Judges 17 through 21 says all the time is they did what was right in their own yeah. eyes. Right smack dab in the middle of Judges 19. One of the characters says that. And so this is an important minute for us to realize that these people are living out. This is supposed to be the apex of the sin of the nation. Mm. So that needs to guide what we're watching for. So in Judges 19, we have a Levite. Um, we don't have his name and a a lot of the people on the end of the book are anonymous, uh, partially because I think the narrator is going out of his way to, um, make us think in terms of their social function, um, not kind of their particular story, but I just call him a Levite. It reminds us that this is the religious leader of Israel, a religious leader of Israel. Um, and so what do we see? Uh, we see him be fairly self-centered. Throughout the narrative, uh, we see him party with this girl's dad, and she's kind of barely mentioned. We see her agency kind of um, go away throughout the narrative. And then, like you noticed, they get to Gibeah. Um, there's a Levite, his friend, his his male servant, and then uh, the concubine or his secondary wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they're there, um, people want to rape him, um, but instead the host offers her to the crowd And you highlighted something. You highlighted the fact that this has a lot of echoes, actually very specific and very strong resemblances with Sodom and Gomorrah. And you talked about how important it is that this is an Israelite settlement Mm -hmm. um, that's acting like Sodom, not um, not an Mm anti-Israelite settlement. But the other key thing to remember is that what this was only threatened in Sodom. This didn't actually happen in Sodom. Um, And so we not only have the fact that this is Israel acting like Sodom, we have Israel doing what even Sodom wasn't allowed to do. Um, And one of the key things I want to highlight too, is that the reason it didn't happen in Sodom is because God rescued the victim. But God doesn't rescue the victim here. And that, I think, is like the key that we all have to sit with as we try to read this and try to understand how people interpret this as a woman. But I mean, as other people who have spoken, who have experienced sexual um, victimization, Mm. like that is the part that they can't get past um, because God didn't save her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the key that we need to remember is, um, again, the context of Judges. In Judges 10, he had said, listen, you guys have cried out to me over and over and over again, but you keep turning away from me. And he says, I will save you no more. And in Judges 10, he stops delivering them fully. He protects them. He gives them Jephthah. He gives them Samson. Actually, he doesn't give them Jephthah. The people choose Jephthah, but he uses him. Um, mm-hmm. And even though they're a mess, he uses them to keep Israel going, to kind mm-hmm. of hold on. But he doesn't give them pure military victory anymore. Mm-hmm. He stops mm-hmm. saving them. And so in this apex of the terrible story, we see him yet again, not save. Um, and so we see what kind of, if we want to use a Pauline phrase, um, he, he gives them over to their own selfish and their own vain. He gives them over to their own sin, hmm. basically. Okay. And we see what happens when people are left to their own devices. Okay. If you aren't going to follow me, I'm going to let you do your thing. And so I guess huh. all of that to say, as a woman, as somebody who's trying to be sensitive to the experience of, of victims of sexual abuse, that violence being there is a critique in and of itself. That's God's way of saying, I have preserved the story to make sure that this woman's horror um, is heard. Um, and I'm judging it and I'm calling it the apex of what a sinful society can do. Um, and so it being there in some way gives a voice to all the people who have experienced that, Mm -hmm. um, to know that God 
recognizes and judges this to be the worst that somebody could wow. to, could do to dishonor him. No, that's super. That's super helpful. Um, it's just such a disturbing passage. One of one of several in the book. Um, yeah. Let, let's go to. So we we. Uh, Speaking of ethically troubling passages, um, before I let you go, would we are we doing okay on you okay on time? You got one yeah, more. I'm good. All right, let's talk yeah, about sure. the uh, let's talk about the uh, the conquest. Just That's, right here at the end, we'll just yeah, we'll throw it in for the last five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, even the word conquest is a real positive way of describing what one could consider. Although I've critiques about the language um, genocide. Uh, Deuteronomy yeah. twenty sixteen, um, when you go into the land of Canaan, do not do not well, how's, how's the old translation? Do not save alive anything that breathes. Um, yeah. I think he even said like slaughter the cows, or I mean, it's like a full on annihilation. And it's one thing to say, hey, these are really bad people. Um, the soldiers are going to come at you. I want you to just destroy their military force, but to kill off anything that breathes includes women, children, pregnant women, little baby. I mean, it's when you really think through the actual historicity of this, it's, it's again, very disturbing. And, um, I'm almost equally disturbed that so many Christians raised in the church have grown up with the book of Joshua and aren't disturbed. (laughs) I wasn't for so many years. I love Joshua, quote Joshua, Joshua one nine, you know, be strong and courageous yeah. as you're committing genocide, you know, and we wear that on our, um, help us see how, how have you worked through the ethics of the book of Joshua? Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, not sufficiently is the short answer, but, um, one of the things that I always tell my students is when they come to these passages, they should bother them as you articulated. Um, we should have to grapple with this a little bit. That doesn't show a lack of faith. That doesn't show a lack of understanding. It shows that we value life Mm -hmm. and we have to wonder uh, what God is doing. Um, There are a couple of things I try to keep in mind as I read these passages. Um, One of those is that um, historically, and I I hate even making this argument because it sounds like I'm trying to make it easier to swallow, and that's Mm -hmm. not what I'm trying to do. Um, but it is important for us to remember that chances are, um, what we're talking about is the people who didn't run away. Um, a lot of times we, I mean, we've already heard, for example, in the Jericho story, Rahab says, everybody is melted away before you because we heard about what your God did in the Exodus. And so a lot of people would actually argue that what we're talking about is some people have fled and that what this is saying is we need to have a decisive victory over those who remain. Ah. Um, Again, I'm not sure that that solves very many problems for us, uh, really, but it is good for us to remember that this is kind of formulaic language that's used in military accounts um, to describe a decisive victory. And it's ultimately about making the the area um, clean and pure for Yahweh. And so everybody needs to get out. Most of the time in the Deuteronomy passages, actually, it doesn't use the vocabulary of extinguish or kill. It uses the vocabulary of drive out. Exactly. The influence of the paganite society is what needs to be gone. Mm -hmm. And so that's going to happen. I mean, there's no question that when you're invading a land, there's either going to be peaceful covenants or there's going to be fighting. Those are really your only two options. Mm -hmm. And so covenants aren't allowed. So there's going to be fighting with whoever remains. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what we're talking about is the people who won't leave. Mm -hmm. Um, This is, this is what we're doing. So there's, there's that. Yeah. Um, But on top of that, because that doesn't solve everything. One thing I try to remind people, it doesn't solve anything, frankly, I think. Um, one thing we need to remember is that nations rise and fall all throughout the Bible. All throughout the Bible, God builds up nations and tears them down. In fact, he's going to tear down Israel in a pretty decisive way. Some of the very vocabulary that's used of the way that the um, Canaanites get driven out of the land is the same vocabulary we see used in the prophets uh, for the way that Israel is driven out of Israel, mm-hmm. uh, that the, the Israelites are driven from the land in the exile. Uh, And so it's good for us to remember that, I mean, 
all through Daniel. We have him rising up an empire, then moving in another one. God and his providence does that kind of stuff in history. Well, depending on how you like to talk about God's providence, I, I acknowledge that. Um, but he does that kind of stuff throughout history. And so we have this one time highlighted because it was the one time that Israel uh, had to be obedient and had to be a part of it. And so we hear all about it over I think sometimes when we turn the story into these terrible Canaanites and these great Israelites, we miss the fact that this wasn't about race at all. It was about faithfulness to Yahweh. Rahab gets to be part of the Israelites because she confesses that Yahweh is God. For all we know, that happened all the time. Um, And so I I think it's just helpful to remember, this isn't about Israel and the other guys. Mm -hmm. This is about Yahwism and not Yahwism. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is about a land to God and not devoted to God. Um, again, that doesn't solve anything, but I think it helps us to remember that Israel's going to experience the same fate when she yeah. gets to, when when the nation gets to a place where she is committing atrocities well, to. And I think, yeah, I've got several thoughts. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't say it. Do, I, I mean, it does solve something. I mean, it, it does help to read this story if you read it through the lens of just trying to come at it with a neutral worldview or something, then yeah, it's going to be problematic. But if you come at it within some kind of biblical worldview that we, you know, assuming that there is a God who does have the right to punish um, whole people groups. In fact, if you go back to Genesis six, you can almost say God genocided the entire human population through the flood, you know, only this time he used, yeah, we have a lot of other violence to be upset about. Right. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like this one's the difference is this has a human agent, but again, the whole, the whole story is framed in this larger framework of divine punishment. God is using Israel as an agent, whereas other places he doesn't like the flood or whatever. Um, but it's still divine punishment. At least that's the perspective presented in the story. So this is why I don't like, to use the term genocide takes a more modern phenomenon and, and places on the Bible, uh, the biblical presentation of this, but it doesn't really fit. It's not like a bunch of racist Israelites went in and just randomly slaughtered Canaanites because they didn't like the Canaanite people. That's not really what's going on in the story. Um, and again, I'm going to give the same caveat you did several times. You know, I'm, I, I don't, I don't want to overly whitewash. I'm not trying to say, yeah, but they were really bad people. You know, like I, I don't like that kind of approach, but I think there are several other things going on. Um, and like you even mentioned, so, I mean, Yael is a Canaanite, right? Or of the Canaan, yeah. I mean. Well, she's a Kenite. A Kenite. But well, yeah, she's Can- not Israelite. Even Canaanites, isn't that like a catch-all term, kind of like American, but there's lots of ethnicities within sure. that? Um, uh, so Kenite yeah, would be in different ways, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. so I, I, I got a theory here. I, I want, I want to I'm test interested. this. Huh? <laughs> um, no, no, I'm excited. I want to test, test this with you. Cause I, I, I'm glad you brought up the, the, the dominant languages that they were driven out the whole, yeah. like the, the one I quoted from Deuteronomy 20, that's, there's only a couple places that use that language. The dominant language is driving out. And then you have this sure. whole thing with the hornet. The hornet's going to go before you and drive them out. And we don't know. It's what... a weird time. Right. I don't know. Okay. It might mean hornet. We actually don't know what it means. Okay. Um, it's a really rare word. Oh, it is. It's, it might not yeah. mean actual hornet or. Well, that's, I mean, that's as far as we can tell from like comparing it to other places, but it is a very rare word, which is why sometimes in, in the bio, uh, some translations translate it like a terror will go before oh, you yeah, or something. Okay. Whatever we know, it's scary. I love having a Hebrew scholar that I can just. <laughs> Here for the team, man. So amazing. Okay, so I got a theory. Deuteronomy twenty sixteen um, says you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. And he says you must completely destroy them: the Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Canaanite, so on and so forth, as God has commanded you. So that seems to be like. A comprehensive annihilation. Now, go to Joshua chapter ten. I think it's. Mm-hmm. I should have planned this. Um, I think it's. Verse no, you're four, not wrong. Verse forty. It says, "So Joshua conquered the whole region, the hill country, the Negev, the Judean foothills, and the slopes." Like even gives this. He's not talking about just like yeah. the whole land, with their kings, leaving no survivors. He completely destroyed every 
living being as the Lord, the God of Israel had commanded. This sounds like Joshua 1040 is saying whatever was commanded in Deuteronomy, Joshua did. However, (laughs) we know as a matter of fact, from the book of Joshua and especially judges that he didn't kill everybody. Which yeah. leads me to suggest, based on textual, I've had people accuse me of just being, you're making this stuff up, and I'm like, look, I'm just going on what the Bible's actually saying here. Um, clearly, Joshua 10:40 is some kind of hyperbole because the rest of Joshua says he didn't annihilate every single living being. So when he says he didn't leave any survivors, he actually did leave survivors. Like, so this is a hyperbolic statement. Which makes, yeah. and yet he connects it to the command in, in 2016 of Deuteronomy. So, if since, not if, but since this is a hyperbolic battle kind of statement, could the command, don't leave a lie, don't save alive anything that breathes, also be hyperbolic? Do, are you following the me? Is that tracking? Is yes. And, oh, I'm following. Yeah. This is actually something people have been writing about quite a bit. Lawson oh. Younger has. <laughs> I thought, I thought it was the first one. <laughs> I, I was trying to figure out if it would be like, that's super smart, Preston. <laughs> also, well published. <laughs> uh, Lawson Younger has like the definitive super scholarly work on it. Uh, and he talks about it's an ancient conquest accounts is what it's called. That vocabulary of like, don't leave live anything that breathes is actually in a bunch of other ancient Near Eastern texts. It's common. Uh, So it's a standard way of identifying this kind of warfare. And in those texts, very much like this one, there is room for it to function as a hyperbole, not a deceptive kind, but in the same way um, I can say, um, we completely annihilated the people on the basketball court. We're leaving room for some sort of cultural understanding that this vocabulary is communicating an idea uh, that might not, you know, uh, correspond to its exact concrete words. Um, We want to be careful to start like throwing hyperbole around. And then all of a sudden the Bible can say, well, whatever we want it to. But as you pointed out, Joshua itself encourages us if we want to read these things in a unified way to suggest this has some sort of summary or, um, or some kind of hyperbolic uh, assumption. Okay. I also think you're right that by borrowing the language of Deuteronomy, whatever Je- Joshua is saying about the historical reality, it's saying that Joshua did what he was supposed to. Right. Uh, and so he did what he was supposed to. Uh, so that's one dynamic. Yes, there's hyperbole. Another factor that we talk about sometimes is there are different stages of conquering a land. And there's these initial battles where you kind of um, you clear out uh, the power structures of the enemy, but you don't actually move in. Uh, and then there's the second state where you actually move in, settle and set up camp. Mm-hmm. And another way to talk about the difference between we see in Joshua and Judges is these are these in, uh, initial uh, entry battles where their job is to conquer all of these important places in the land. Yeah. But then next they have to move in. That's what Judges 13 and following is all about, or Joshua 13 and following. Right. You guys actually have to go in and settle. And that's the part that judges like that, that they did really poorly. So there's also that element. So there's huh. several places we need to just read a little more carefully. Okay. Uh, it, no battle do people come in, set up a flag, and then everything's done. That's just not how right. war works. Right. Uh, and so we have to remember that there might have been these initial battles where they were 100% faithful, but they didn't follow through. Okay. Oh, that, well, what's the book you referenced again? Though? It, um... Lawson's? Uh, yes. Dr. Young. Ancient Israelite. Most ancient Conquest Accounts. That's where I got it from. Okay, so... Okay, see, you did read this. I did, I did, I did. So (laughs) I talk about this in my book, Fight. I actually do have it published. Yeah, I thought so. But I got it from... Because I did a bunch of research in ancient Near East. um, Like, just the whole military genre. Like, how you talk about military victories has hyperbole built into it. Like, that's just part of the genre. Um, And yeah, you see overstatements all over the place in ancient Near East kings saying, we didn't leave alive anything, you know, and like, well, actually, they're still around, you know, so. um, Well, and the good news is the biblical record doesn't lie to us. It gives us those caveats. So it's not even like they used hyperbole and it's up to us to sort it out. The Bible's like. But let's be clear, a lot of people remain. So it even goes out of its way in, in ways that other accounts don't to clarify what we mean by those statements. Yeah. And so in many ways, it's pushing us to read those statements as hyperbole, right. as responsible readers. Okay. Well, I want to end with a, um, a real practical question. So uh, Joshua 1.9 is a famous, famous refrigerator verse. Um, I actually love the verse. I use it a lot. 
um, you know, be strong and courageous, do what I've commanded you to do. But once I started really studying the Old Testament, I was a little more disturbed by that because the actual context is you're going to go in and slaughter all these people, be strong and courageous and do that. And it's like, ooh, that's not me getting pumped up for a job interview. This is like, you know, at least in its original context. However, is there... Um, can we use Joshua one nine in more of a gen? Can we extract maybe the principle there and post it on our refrigerator and write it on our mirrors? And what do you think, Old Testament scholar? Like, <laughs> I mean, I hope so uh, because here's the thing: at the end of the day, when Joshua reflects on this and he has his final sermons, he brings it up again and he once right. again tells them to be strong and courageous. And at that point, these initial battles that were so important have already taken place, as we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Not everything. Um, but what he also says in those chapters is choose this day whom you will serve. Yeah. Um, you choose, you can either go back, you can, you can serve who your fathers did back when across the river, you can choose to, uh, serve the Canaanite gods, which is what Israel's going to choose to do in judges. But the point of all of this is that by following through on these very hard to follow rules, they are showing that their 100% devotion is to God. Mm. Because like we talked about, when you move into a land, you either uh, become part of Mm -hmm. those inhabitants or not. And so if they don't drive them out, they become part of them and they get Canaanized. And that's what judges shows us. And so when they are supposed to choose this day whom they will serve, that's what judge, that's what Joshua is really about. And so when he says be strong and courageous, and I would probably translate it resilient, the point is it's going to be very difficult for you, but the way you're going to demonstrate your wholehearted devotion to me is by being 100% obedient to the very hard tasks in front of you. And that's something that all of us carry with that, that burden, that job, that vocation is something that all of us carry all the time. Michelle, that's a great, great way to end an awesome podcast. Thank you so much for being on Theology in the Raw. I could talk to you for hours. I can't believe it's been almost an hour already. Uh, I'm sorry I talked so much. No, not – no, gosh. <laughs> um, you know what? No, no. I, 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 do you have like 10 more minutes? <laughs> five more minutes? <laughs> I'll give you five. I'll give you five. Five. Okay, okay. I, well, I always want to ask like – I, you know, I ask um, – um, Madison, this and others like, what's it been like being a female in evangelical academia? If you don't mind. My short answer, no, no, that's fine. My short answer is I think I've had an easier time than a lot of people. Okay. Um, by the grace of God, I've been, um, part of that was that I was a really strong complementarian until like seminary. Okay. Um, and so, um, part of that was, I didn't believe I could teach. I didn't believe Mm -hmm. um, I was called to that um, for a long time. And that meant there were a lot of years of hard fighting I didn't have to do because I wasn't convinced that was even an option yet. But aside from that, I've just always had um, really supportive people around. I, um, I do have like the same stories we all have where like I had one professor in undergrad sit me down and be like, I'm teaching you exegesis, but I actually believe it's a sin for you to teach other people. Um, and so I've had those kind of horror story experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, um, I've been in places where people have really built me up. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main issue for me is, is more like a social one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not so much I have people disrespecting me or not thinking I should be here. It's more just the difficulty of um, being on a faculty where there are a few other women. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm so grateful to have a good friend who's at the school with me. Um, but things like what's the maternity policy? Nobody knows because nobody's had to use it before. Or, I mean, or things like that. It's just, uh, it's more that social dynamic. I think that's hard um, to walk into a room and to be the only woman there yeah. or to constantly have people being say, you know, and you did this today, but don't feel bad about it because you acknowledged you were doing it, but always for the question to be, so as a woman, how do you read this? Oh, yeah, and yeah, I always okay. want to be like, yeah. I don't know. I, I read it in Hebrew and with the same things you do. I don't know. But as you pointed out, there's some truth to that and there's some not. But yeah. So always just everyone noticing you're a woman when you walk in the room okay. before they notice anything else about you, I think is the number one difficulty of okay. being a woman in evangelical scholarship. That's helpful. It's, um, yeah. It's, I mean, yeah, we're, I'm fine. I, yeah. 
things I'll say this, like I wrote a dissertation about the song of Deborah and I constantly have to be like, I didn't choose it because I'm a woman. <laughs> I chose it because it's a really cool song. But everybody's like, oh yeah, of course you wrote about Deborah. <laughs> that is the stig the stigma, the stereotype. And and there's there's enough people out there that you know, if you're a female scholar, you must be writing on women in the Bible and it's not abnormal, but I mean, I, there's, there's a reason, I think there's a reason for that too. A really beautiful reason. Um, do you ever feel, do you ever get the question? Like if you're at a theology conference, do people ever, or a pastoral conference, you know, like, Oh, so now are you here with your husband or do you, have you not gotten constantly, constantly? Uh, yeah. So at ETS, I, I have started like, wearing trinity garb just to have less conversations yeah. um with people about where my husband is oh your husband so, is a trinity yeah. and got you a shirt that's so sweet yeah yeah that's true maybe it does not help but it, it stays off some issues but yeah and i mean that's constant yeah. maybe it just doesn't bother me as much okay. i don't know um but uh, or sometimes I'll say I work at Trinity and people will be like, Oh, are you a secretary? And I'm like, no, no, I'm a professor. Oh, of psychology. Uh, no, of old Testament. Oh, with the undergrad. No, at the divinity school. Oh, for, you mean like an adjunct? No, I'm yeah. full time. It's just the expectations are really different than reality. And so that can be exhausting. I yeah. think, I think it, it tires me out more than it offends me. You should uh, respond in biblical Hebrew next time. Somebody asking. <laughs> uh, let me tell you. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> All right. For sure. For real. That's, that's, uh, I'll let you go. Thanks so much, Michelle, for being on, uh, theology in the raw. If you want to check out Michelle's work, you can go to her, uh, your, your page, uh, on the Ted's, uh, Trinity evangelical divinity school, sure. Michelle Knight. Uh, do you have another website or anything else or, uh, no, no. Okay. That should get you what you need. All right, cool. Thanks so much for being on. I appreciate you.